Uh, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, my name is Richard Holloway, and it's my pleasure and privilege to chair this event tonight. It is generally our tradition at the Edinburgh International Book Festival not to spend too much time introducing our authors. This is partly because we can usually assume that our audiences already know a lot about the men and women they've come to hear, and it's partly because we want to spend our time listening to our authors, not talking about them or even at them. A bit of that goes on. But on this occasion, I think it's right to break that rule or to stretch it a bit because the distinguished Canadian writer who is our guest tonight requires, as well as merits, a slightly more extended introduction. Margaret Bennett, the singer and Scottish folklorist, told me recently that one of the great events in her life was when she discovered in Nova Scotia perfectly preserved elements of Gallic culture, kept alive by the descendants of Highlanders who settled there a few years after Culloden. And that is the world Alistair MacLeod comes from, and reading his heartbreakingly beautiful novel, No Great Mischief, which was 13 years in the writing, you're put in touch with it in an extraordinary way. To try to express the impact of his writing, I want to use a theme from Catholic Eucharistic theology. It comes with a previous trade I was in. <laughs> when Jesus said at the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me, the Greek word that we translate remembrance is anamnesis. It's a word with several layers, but its force lies not in remembering the past, but in making it present again. The Mass is not elegy, but actualization. And that, I believe, is something of what Alistair MacLeod achieves in his writing. He makes the story of his people present in a way that effaces time's boundaries. Alistair MacLeod was born in North Battleford, Saskatchewan in 1936, but by the age of 10 he had returned with his family to their farm in Cape Breton. After high school he attended Teachers College in Toronto, taught for a bit, but then did degrees in several universities, ending with a PhD from Notre Dame. He stayed in the U.S. for a bit, teaching at Indiana University, before returning to Canada as Professor of English and Creative Writing at the University of Windsor in Ontario. What is fascinating about him is that for many years his critical reputation rested upon 14 short stories collected in The Lost Salt Gift of Blood, 1976, and as Birds Bring Forth, in 1986. His novel, No Great Mischief, was published in 1999, and in 2001 it won the world's richest literary prize for fiction, the International Impact Dublin Literary Award. He has inevitably been likened to other great writers, Hemingway, Faulkner, Thomas Hardy, because of his spareness and lyricism, but he is, of course, just purely, perfectly himself. And it gives me enormous pleasure to invite him now to read to us, to talk to us about his work, or anything else that comes into his Hebridean head, because we are honored and delighted to have him in our midst. 
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the great Alistair MacLeod. I don't know what's going to come into my great Hebridean head. But, uh, anyway, I'm going to read uh, four sections <coughs> from this novel, No Great Mischief, and uh, <coughs> should take maybe 25 minutes. <coughs> uh, and I've tried to put the four sections together in such a way that they don't seem like sections, but that they seem like a cleverly crafted whole. Okay. Uh, now, this is a problem. When you read sections, you have to explain what it's about. <coughs> okay. The title of this novel, the novel is about belief <coughs> and uh, loyalty <coughs> and uh, the good news and the bad news associated with those uh, qualities. Uh, <coughs> the title, No Great Mischief, is uh, part of a sentence from James Wolfe, He Who Gave Us Canada, and uh, it was about uh, the efficacy of putting Highland soldiers in the front lines at the Siege of Quebec. And the idea that he expressed in his letter to Captain Rickson, a letter that was written from Banff, Scotland, was that these were uh, athletic people <coughs> and uh, good soldiers, but if they were shot in the front lines, it would be no great mischief if they fell. So the line is, no great mischief if they fall. <coughs> so that's the uh, title of the, uh, of the novel. Not to babble on about Highland history, but uh, the Siege of Quebec took place in 1759, which is like 14 years after the uh, uh, Culloden business. <coughs> and a lot of the soldiers who fought in the on the Bonnie Prince Charlie side uh, had a price on their head, and so they went to France. France had supported the rebellion. And while they were over there, they who were initially uh, Gaelic-speaking people uh, learned French. And Wolf was going to Canada because these people, who were, you know, maybe <coughs> 20 at the uh, at, uh, time of the 45, would be like 35 now. They would still be relatively young men. They were offered a pardon if they would uh, fight for the British side. They would previously fought against the British side. So a lot of them took this and went to Canada. And uh, <coughs> a lot of their um, uh, <coughs> descendants are still there. So that's kind of... Uh, Interesting. So at the siege of Quebec, when the French were on the top of the cliffs, the uh, people who went up the cliffs uh, were uh, <coughs> McDonald's, <coughs> who had learned uh, French while they were in. Have a wee drink. Have a wee drink. While they were in, uh, while uh, they were in France. So when the French sentries called out, "Who goes there?" They answered them in French. Uh, so this is the history of Canada in a brief, uh, <laughs> in a thumbnail sketch. All right, now what else will I say? Uh, maybe I won't read it all. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the narrator of No Great Mischief is a an orthodontist.
because, I, because orthodontists in North America are really rich. <laughs> and I don't know what they're like in Scotland, but they're really rich in North America because they look after the teeth and the jawlines of other really rich people. <laughs> so Medicare or universal aid or whatever it is uh, doesn't pay for the work of the orthodontist because it's seen as kind of frivolous. So this narrator wants to become rich and he does become rich uh, as an orthodontist. Now, this allowed me to read many dentist magazines, which was <laughs> kind of exciting. Um, and uh, uh, the other interesting thing about being the rich orthodontist is uh, uh, he never has to deal with poor people because poor people can never afford to go to the orthodontist. Really, really poor people don't even go to the dentist. Uh, so I want to make him rich. And I achieved this by reading magazines. Uh, now, what else will I say? Uh, orthodontists are made, uh, not born. And so I'm going to read a little section about what happened to a member of the orthodontist family and to himself uh, at an earlier time. This is set in roughly 1948 or 1949, the early part after the war. And the orthodontist family are lighthouse keepers. And they maintain a lighthouse on an island about two miles off the mainland. In Canada, uh, in the winter, this, the water that separates the island from the mainland is covered with ice. This is drift ice from the Eastern Arctic. And so for a little while in the winter, you can kind of walk on water. You know, you can walk on the ice which means that that ocean, which is in some ways the same ocean that touches Scotland, is different in what happens to it January, February, March. I'm going to give you my drink. All right. There are three or four little Gaelic phrases here. I don't feel kind of embarrassed. You know what they, what they are. Gilibekrua means little red-haired boy. And Quown uh, Calamrua is the word for clan, C-L-A-N-N. And it means the extended family of the red-haired Callum or the red Malcolm or something like that. And the Gaelic word for dog is coo. And the, and the expression maithel is something like a term of endearment, like dear or darling. OK, here we go. My twin sister and I were the youngest children in our family and we were three on March 28th when it was decided that we would spend the night with our grandparents. On the morning of March 28th, which was the beginning of a weekend, my parents and their six children and their dog walked ashore across the ice. Their older sons, who were 16, 15, and 14, apparently took turns carrying my sister and me upon their shoulders, stopping every so often to take off their mitts and rub our faces so that our cheeks would not be so cold as to be frozen without our realizing it. Our father, accompanied by our brother Colin, who was 11, walked ahead of us, testing the ice from time to time with a long pole, although there did not seem much need to do so, for he had bushed the ice some two months earlier, meaning he had placed spruce trees upright in the snow and ice to serve as a sort of road guide for winter travelers. 
My parents welcomed the winter ice because it allowed them to do many practical things that were more difficult to accomplish in the summer. They could truck their supplies over the ice without the difficulty of first hauling everything to the wharf and then trying to load it on the boat which swayed below, and then, after transporting it across to the island, having to hoist it up out of the boat to the wharf's cap, and then again, having to transport it up the cliff to the promontory <coughs> where the lighthouse stood. They took coal and wood across in the winter and walked and traded animals, leading them by their halters across the treacherous and temporary bridge. On March 28th, there was a lot for my family to do. My older brothers, who were going to visit their cousins in the country, those who still lived in the old Kalamrua houses neighboring the spot which my grandparents had left when they became people of the town. If they could get a ride, they were going to spend the weekend there. Even if they could not get a ride, they were planning to walk, saying that ten miles on the inland sheltered roads would not be as cold as a mile and a half straight across the ice. My parents were planning to cash my father's paycheck, which they hoped my grandparents had picked up at the post office, and my brother Colin was looking forward to his new parka, which my mother had shrewdly ordered from the Eaton sale catalogue when such heavy winter garments were reduced by the coming promise of spring. He had been hoping for it since before Christmas. My sister and I were looking forward to the visit with our grandparents, who always made a great to-do about us, and always told us how smart we were to make such a great journey from such a far and distant place. And the dog knew where she was going too, picking her way across the ice carefully, and sometimes stopping to gnaw off the balls of snow and ice, which formed between the delicate pads of her hard paws. Everything went well, and the sun shone brightly as we journeyed forth, together walking first upon the ice so we could later walk upon the land. In the late afternoon the sun still shone and there was no wind, but it began to get very cold, the kind of deceptive cold that can fool those who confuse the shining of the winter sun with warmth. Relatives visiting my grandparents' house said that my brothers had arrived at their destination and would not be coming back until perhaps the next day. My parents distributed their purchases upon their purchases into haversacks, which were always in my grandparents' house, and which they used for carrying supplies upon their backs. Because my parents' backs would be burdened, and because my brothers were not there, it was decided that my sister and I would spend the night, and that our brothers would take us back to the island when they returned. It was suggested that Colin also might stay, but he was insistent that he go so that he might test the long-anticipated warmth of the new parka. When they left, the sun was still shining, although it had begun to decline, and they took two storm lanterns, which might serve as lights or signs and signals for the last part of the trip. My mother carried one and Colin the other, while my father grasped the ice pole in his hand. When they, sent out, when they set out, they first had to walk about a mile along the shore until they reached the appropriate place to get on the ice and then they started across, following the route of the spruce trees which my father had set out. Everyone could see their three dark forms and the smaller one of the dog outlined upon the whiteness over which they traveled. By the time they were halfway across it was dusk, and out there in the ice they lit their lanterns, and that too was seen from the shore, and then they continued on their way. Then the lanterns seemed to waver, and almost to dance wildly, and one described an arc, in what was now the darkness, and then was still. Grandpa watched for almost a minute to be sure of what he was seeing, and then he shouted to my grandmother, There is something wrong out on the ice. There is only one light, 
and it is not moving. My grandmother came quickly to the window. Perhaps they stopped, she said. Perhaps they're resting. Perhaps they had to adjust their packs. Perhaps they had to relieve themselves. But there's only one light, said Grandpa, and it is not moving at all. Perhaps that's it, said Grandma, hopefully. The other light blew out, and they're trying to get it started. My sister and I were playing on the kitchen floor with Grandma's cutlery. We were playing store, taking turns, buying the spoons and knives and forks from each other with a supply of pennies from a jar Grandma kept in her lower cupboard for emergencies. The light is still not moving, said Grandpa, and he began hurriedly to pull on his winter clothes and boots, even as the phone began ringing. The light is not moving, the light is not moving, the voices said. They are in trouble out on the ice. And then the voices spoke in the hurriedness of exchange. Take a rope, take some ice poles, take a blanket that we can use as a stretcher, take brandy, we will meet you at the corner. Don't start across without us. I have just bought all his spoons and knives, said my sister proudly from the kitchen floor, and I still have all these pennies left. Good for you, said Grandma. A penny saved is a penny earned. When they were partway to the shore, their lights picked up the dog's eyes, and she ran to Grandpa when he called to her in Gaelic, and she leaped up to his chest and his outstretched arms and licked his face, even as he threw his mitts from his hands so he could bury them deep within the fur upon her back. She was coming to get us, he said. They've gone under. Not under, someone said. Perhaps down, but not under. I think under, said Grandpa. She was under anyway. She's soaked to the spine. She's smart and she's a good swimmer, and she's got a heavy layered coat. If she just went down, she'd be down and up in a second, but she's too wet for that. She must have gone down, and then the current carried her under the ice, and she had to swim back to the hole to get herself back out. They went out on the ice in single file, the string of their moving lights seeming almost like a kind of Christmas decoration, each light moving to the rhythm of the man who walked and carried it in his hand. They followed the tracks and walked towards the light, which remained permanent on the ice. As they neared it, they realized it was sitting on the ice, sitting upright by itself and not held by any hand. The tracks continued until they came to the open water, and then there were no more. Years later, my sister and I were in grade 11, and the teacher was talking to the class about Wordsworth, and as an example, was reading to us from the poem entitled Lucy Gray. When she came to the latter lines, both my sister and I started simultaneously and looked towards each other, as if in the old, but new to us, we had stumbled upon the familiar experience. They followed from the snowy bank those footmarks one by one, into the middle of the plank, and further, there were none. And further, there were none. But on March 28th, we were tiring of our game of store and putting the cutlery away as our grandmother prepared to ready us for bed while glancing anxiously through the window. Out on the ice, the dog began to whine when they came near the open water, and the first men in the line lay on their stomachs, each holding the feet of the man before him, so that they might form a type of human chain with their weight distributed even more evenly, more evenly than if they remained standing but it was of no use, for other than the light there was nothing, and the ice seemed solid right up to the edge of the dark and sloshing void. There was nothing for the men to do but wonder. Beyond the crater, the rows of spruce trees marched on in ordered single file, in much the same way that they led up to the spot of their interruption. It was thought that, perhaps, only one tree had gone down under. The section of the ice that had gone was not large, but as my grandfather said, 
it was more than big enough for us. The tide was going out when they vanished, leaving nothing but a lantern, perhaps tossed onto the ice by a sinking hand and miraculously landing upright and continuing to glow, or perhaps set down after its arc, wildly but carefully, by a hand which sought to reach another. The men performed a sort of vigil out on the ice, keeping the hole broken open with their ice poles and waiting for the tide to run its course. And in the early hours of the morning, when the tide was in its change, my brother Colin surfaced in one of those half-expected uncertainties known only to those who watched the sea. The white fur hood of his parka broke the surface, and the half-frozen men, who were crouched like patient Inuit around the hole, shouted to one another and reached for him with their poles. They thought that he had not been a great distance under him, or that his clothes had snagged beneath the ice, and they thought that. Perhaps, since he was not bearing a backpack, he had not been so heavily burdened, and perhaps the new material in his parka possessed flotation qualities that had buoyed him to the top. His eyes were open, and the drawstrings of his hood were still neatly tied and tucked beside his throat in the familiar manner that my mother always used. In the morning, my sister and I were having our porridge, mapping little rivers on its surface for the milk to follow, and sprinkling it too liberally with brown sugar, and still for the most part unaware of what had happened. My grandmother hugged my my sister fiercely to her, and my grandfather ruffled my hair. Poor Gillybeck Roa, he said, things will never again be the same for you. The wake for my brother Colin was held at the home of my grandparents, two days and two nights, with a funeral on the third day. Quan Kalamarua came from great distances, as well as from nearby, and it seemed the house would burst. The women sent in vast quantities of food, and there were more than enough men to dig the grave in the frozen snow-covered cemetery, passing the pick from one to the other, and watching the sparks fly up from the frozen earth. When the mourners entered the house, they went immediately to the casket to say their prayers, and then they would turn to offer their condolences. Many of them looked instinctively for my parents because it was to the parents that one turned when a child was lost. And then they would remember and compose themselves, (coughs) look for the other closest next of kin. They would go towards my grandparents or my uncles and aunts or my stricken older brothers, embracing the women and shaking hands with the men and saying, sorry for your troubles, sorry for your troubles. Throughout much of the wake, many of them, in spite of themselves, kept looking towards the door, as if expecting to see my parents coming in, coming home, called home by a death in the family. But they did not come at all. Throughout the days and nights of the wake, Quan Kalamrua slept on chairs and in the hallways, and sometimes on the floor in bedrooms where the beds were already full. And most of them took shifts sitting up all night beside the small corpse of my brother Colin, so he would not be alone. He lay in perfect stillness throughout it all, but with that type of perfection that still somehow seems to be in waiting, as if waiting for my mother to check his necktie or to make sure his fingernails were clean, as if she were to say, you will be the center of attention. Everyone will be looking at you. For the days and nights, there was much conversation as to how and why it had all happened. Everyone agreed that my father was a good man on the ice, and it was true that they had crossed over the same route earlier in the day. It was true also that the currents and tides were running freely and had perhaps eaten away more of the underside of the ice than anyone had realized, 
and it was, after all, the end of March, and the sun had been shining, although it did not seem to have been that strong. It all remained, somehow, most inconclusive. It was generally decided that it was an act of God, as the insurance copies might term it, although Kwan Kalamrua referred to it as God's, as God's will and trusted in his mercy. Some others who had read or misread the book of Job saw it as an example of God's justice and his punishment and cast about for reasons. Perhaps since my parents had taken the job <coughs> on the island, they had not gone to church as often as they should have. Perhaps they had engaged in premarital sex in the time before their marriage. Who was now to ever know? Who was to find reasons? Others told stories of forerunners, of how they had seen lights on, out on the ice at the exact spot years before, and of how such harbingers could now be seen as prophecies fulfilled. Throughout the wake, my other grandfather made only irregular appearances because he was not a man for communal mourning. And later he volunteered across the ice and look after the island until a permanent replacement could be found. He took his violin with him, and once or twice in the still evenings and when the wind blew towards the land, it was possible to hear the laments he apparently thought he was playing only to himself. He played better than most people realized he could, and the music was even more haunting to those who understood its source. He played Neil Gow's Lament, or the Moor Among the Heather, and Hector the Hero, and Glen Coe and Patrick McCrimmon's Lament for the Children. We have suffered a great loss, but we have other children, and we have each other, said Grandma to Grandpa. Nobody knows the depth, <coughs> and nobody knows the depth of that man's sorrow. In the time after the wake, the older Kalamrua men, who often sat around my grandparents' kitchen, would sometimes offer my sister and me handfuls of coins because they could not think of anything else to do. Sometimes they would refer to us as the lucky children, and sometimes as the unlucky children. Maithel on the little girl, they would say, or poor Gillibeck Rua, you have a long road ahead of you. They say that beneath the ice, there was always a layer of air between it and the actual water. And that if you are swept under the thing to do, we should try to turn on your back until you can almost press your mouth and nostrils against the underside of the ice, which will at least allow you to breathe. And then you must keep your eyes open so that you can see the hole that you came through and try to work yourself back towards it. If you close your eyes in the freezing salt, you may become disoriented and therefore doomed because you do not have much time. And if the currents are running strongly, they may take you under such a distance and so quickly that your most rapid reaction may prove in the end, to be too slow. I have often thought of my parents as upside down beneath the ice, almost the way you see potato bugs on the underside of the leaf, their hands and knees pushing upwards in something resembling a macabre fetal position, trying to press their mouths against the underside of the top, which kept them down, trying to breathe in order that they might somehow stay alive. In the weeks that followed their loss, the sun shone brightly and the currents were strong, and the ice turned black beneath its own whiteness, as if eaten by a hidden cancer, which only now began to make itself visible. And within a few days, what had been a white and seeming certain expanse became but a view of bobbing cakes and swirling chunks, turning and reflecting in the light and the gray-blue water. 
twice before the breakup, the dog left my grandparents' house and crossed to the island looking for her people, and twice my uncles crossed to bring her back. Second time, Grandpa tied her with a chain to the doorstep, but she whined or whinged, as they said, so visibly and so mournfully that the next morning Grandpa let her go because, he said, she was breaking my heart. Immediately, she raced down to the shore and started across, running low across the level ice and hurling herself without hesitation into the open water, swimming to the nearest pan and then leaping from one pan to the other while Grandpa watched her progress through his binoculars. She made it, he said finally, turning from the window. Poor Koo. She was still there waiting for her vanished people to rise out of the sea when the new lightkeeper, a man from the way of Pitdome, nudged the prow of his boat against the wharf on the island's rocky shore. She came scrambling down the rocks to meet him with her hackles raised and her teeth bared, protecting what she thought was hers and snarling in her certainty. And he reached into the prow of his boat for his twenty-two rifle and pumped four bullets into her loyal waiting heart. And later he caught her by the hind legs and threw her body into the sea. She was descended from the original Kalamrua dog, said Grandpa, when he heard the news, pouring himself a water glass full of whiskey, which he drank without a flinch. The one who swam after the boat when they were leaving Scotland. It was in those dogs, he said, to care too much and to try too hard. On May 15th, my other grandfather came across his daughter's purse on one of his early morning walks along the shore. It was still clasped tightly, and inside it, there was not much of value or interest to the larger world. There was a $10 bill wrapped tightly within a handkerchief, and the sales slip and guarantee for Callum's parka, in case it should not prove to be quite adequate. This is the story of how my sister and I, as three-year-old children, planned to spend the night with the grandparents and remained instead for 16 years until we left to go to university. This is a story of lives which turned out differently than was <coughs> intended, and obviously much of this information is not really mine at all, not in the sense that I experienced it. For as I said, while our parents were drowning, my sister and I were playing store, and in the generations a long time before, we did not see Calamroa's faithful dog swimming after her family to a life beyond the sea. And we did not see our great-great-great-grandmother, the former Catherine McPherson, sewn, sewn into a canvas bag and thrown also into that same sea. But still, whatever its inaccuracies, this information has come to be known in the manner that family members come to know one another because they share such close proximity, or as Grandma would say, how could you not know that? There are a lot of things I don't know, said Grandma, but there are some things I really believe in. I believe you should always look after your blood. If I did not believe that, she would say, uh, where would you two be? Two years ago, on a sunny afternoon, I sat and listened to my sister within the walls of a modernistic house located high upon one of the more prestigious ridges of the new and hopeful Calgary. In the luxury of our understated living rooms, we held the heavy crystal glasses filled with the amber liquid or placed them carefully on the leather-embossed coasters. 
the bathrooms discreetly located in angled alcoves. The toilets made no sound when they were flushed. The rushing waters all were still. She had gone with her husband, the petroleum engineer named Pankovich, to the oil city of Aberdeen, she said. And one day, when he was out on the North Sea, she had rented a car and driven across the comparatively narrow but deceptive width of Scotland, below the Cairngorm Mountains, Cairngorm Mountains and through the pass of Killiecrankie. Because of the road, she had driven south, although her eventual destination was north. And she had skirted the edge of Rannick Moor, and told me that there she had remembered a T.S. Eliot poem about the moor that began, Here the Crow Starves. Then she entered the stillness of Glencoe, where the MacDonalds were massacred in their beds early on the morning of February 13, 1692, by the government troops they had fed and sheltered for two weeks. Their tall and gigantic leader, MacIan, <coughs> rising from his bed to answer the 5 a.m. knock upon the door while the blizzard raged outside, offering his hospitable glass of whiskey, even as he turned his back to pull on his trousers, only to the bullet smash into the back of his head, causing him to pitch forward across his wife, who in their still warm bed. His once red hair, which had lightened with his advanced age, reverting suddenly back to the even brighter redness of his blood, while the soldiers fell upon his wife and gnawed the rings from her fingers with their teeth. Scarcely a trace any more, said my sister, except for the river and the mountains and the stones and their memories. And she had gone forth to the place <coughs> called and Gilsden, which was originally built to control those people whom Dr. Johnson described as savage clans and roving barbarians, although he had not minded accepting their hospitality. And then she had gone west a few miles to the high cemetery of Kilikurl, where she stood, she said, with the wind in her hair, beside the Celtic cross of Vian Loam, Barnekepach, the <coughs> the fierce poet of the high quarries and the long march through, through the winter snows. Cross faces the mountains that he loved, she said, is the way he wanted to be buried in the place. I guess he never had any doubts, she continued, you know, about loyalty and who and what he really loved and who he really hated. Never doubted the value of his verses. Never doubted the worth of his poems nor the worth of the blood upon his hands. Never wavered in the intensity of what he cared for. No, I said, I guess he didn't, or so they used to say. Do you remember, she asked, when Grandpa would drink his whiskey and uh, how he would start to cry when he told the story about the dog going back across the ice to the island, of how he let her go because she broke his heart, and of how he was shot by the man who didn't know? Yes, I said, shot by the man who grabbed her by the hind legs and threw her into the sea. Oh, I think of that so many, many times, it said my sister. It was as if she had what the churches call a strong faith, that she waited and waited for them, thinking that they would come back long after everyone else had given up hope, thinking that they would come back and she would be waiting for them. Uh, well, I just think of her there, said my sister, caring so much and dying for the island for them, trying to hold their place until they got back. She thought the island was theirs our parents and hers. Yes, I said, betrayed back by my own memories, 
Banpa used to say, poor coo. She was descended from the dog from Scotland, the one who swam after them in the boat in the 1700s and would have drowned if they had not cared for her the way she cared for them, giving it everything that she had. Yes, said my sister, it was in those dogs to care too much and to try too hard. <clears throat> yes, said my sister. Oh, she said, raising her hands towards her hair, here am I, a grown woman, spending my time worrying about the decisions made by a dog. <clears throat> no, I said, reaching for her hand across the table, the way we used to do as children, you were doing more than that. You know you were doing more than that. In the modern Icetic House in Calgary, we held hands across the table the way we used to do as children. Held hands the way we used to do on the Sunday afternoons after we had finished tracing our wistful fingers over the faces of our vanished parents, faces looking up towards us from the photograph album spread out upon the table. The Alberta sun came through the window, infusing the amber liquid and the heavy crystal glasses with particles of light. We took the glasses in our hands and moved them in clockwise circles. The door opened and her children arrived home from school. They came into the room. Is there anything to eat, they asked. We're starved. The light reflected off the reddened blackness of their hair. On Monday morning, my office will be filled, as it was on Friday, with those who yearn to be more beautiful. Some are children whose parents made their appointments for them. Sometimes they are referrals made by friends and colleagues who practice the more basic forms of dentistry. Others have sought me out from considerable distances in the hope that I might give them what they want and think they need. There are some who would wish to alter their jawlines so that they might look more like current pop stars. Sometimes they bring pictures of who they would hope to be along with them. Shyly they bring forth the pictures from within their purses or from the inside pockets of their expensive jackets. You really do not need this, I say to some of them. Think of the future. If, there's a word, if this were to happen, you might find out it is not really what you want at all. I look at them carefully, as might the doctor advising the young, man's, young man against a vasectomy. Quietly, we talk about the consequences and the expectations. In some cases, we talk more basically about the impacted wisdom tooth, the mesiodens, and the supernumerary teeth of children. I give them leaflets with titles such as what may happen after the removal of an impacted tooth, or advice following oral surgery. The leaflets contain headings such as pain, swallowing, swelling, along with advice on medication. Quote, to reduce the density of pain, you must take the medication which is prescribed. Follow the instructions exactly. Do not wait for the pain to become too severe before taking the prescribed tablets. Otherwise, it may become more difficult to control. Should the pain become too intense, please notify this office immediately. Or, quote, do not rinse the mouth until the following morning, and then only gently. Rinsing too early and or too frequently may prevent clotting and also healing. When rinsing, use warm salt water, which will help to flush out food particles lodged in the operated area half a teaspoonful of salt in a glass of lukewarm water. If in doubt, do not hesitate to call this office. Or, under the heading, 
complications which may occur. Sometimes the hole left behind after the molar's removal may remain for some time. Gradually, though, it should fill in with bone and new tissue. Sometimes, as healing advances, small sharp splitters may work up through the tissue and be a source of discomfort and unexpected pain. Gradually, though, they should disappear. If in doubt, do not hesitate to call this office. I think of my grandparents a great deal, and as in the manner of the remembered Gaelic songs, I do not do so consciously. I do not awake in the morning and say, as soon as my feet hit the floor, today I must remember Grandma and Grandpa. <coughs> I will devote 10 whole minutes to the memory, as if I were anticipating isometric exercises or a self-imposed number of push-ups to be done on the floor beside my bed. It does not work that way at all. But they drift into my mind in the midst of the quiet affluence of my office where there is never supposed to be any pain but only the creation of a hopeful beauty. And they drift into the quiet affluence of my home with its sunken living room and its luxuriously understated furniture. And they are there too on Grand Cayman or in Montego Bay or Sarasota or Tenerife or any of those other places uh, to which we go trying to pretend that for us there really is no winter. They drift in like the fine snow in the old Calamaro house in which my brothers used to live, sifting in and around the window casings or under the doors, driven by the insistent and unseen wind, so that in spite of primitive weather stripping or the stuffing with old rags, it continued to persess, persist, forming lines of quiet whiteness to be greeted with surprise. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have about uh, 15 minutes for uh, questions, observations. There are wandering <laughs> mics um, around. Can you put your hands up if you'd like to ask a question? Yes, sir. One in the front here. Thank you. Very quickly, I'll, sir, have you been writing anything new that we might uh, look forward to seeing published? No, just letters to the Edinburgh Literary Festival. <laughs> <laughs> I, I plan to uh, maybe write some more before death. Can't see. Anyone else? Yeah, up here. Hello, Mr. McLeod, uh, Cape Bretoner here, wouldn't have missed you. I uh, officiated at a wedding today, um, and I quote sometimes the last sentence of your novel, we are all better when we're loved. I wonder if you could say a word or two about how that form of words came to you. What a lovely question. <laughs> we're all better when we're loved. All of us are better when we're loved, that's fine. Well. <coughs> I just thought it was a pretty good sentiment. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> in the novel, there are uh, two grandfathers, a, a grandfather who is uh, kind of a scholarly kind of 
person who's always reading books on Highland history, <coughs> and another grandfather who spends all his time drinking beer and singing songs and, uh, and uh, playing cards. And the first grandfather is a solitary man. And the second one is one of those men who never goes any place by himself, who always goes with six friends to the football game or six friends to the tavern, or, or like he's that kind of man. Uh, each of them kind of think the other's life is kind of strange. You know, the serious grandfather could not stand being around all those guys drinking beer in the tavern all the time. And uh, the social grandfather thinks that someone just with his nose in the book all the time is not live, living a very uh, worthwhile life. <coughs> it's easy to think that the scholarly person is the smart one. <coughs> and uh, the social person <coughs> is uh, silly. <coughs> it's, uh, silly. So I decided to give the serious line to the silly person, so-called, to show appearances can be deceiving. So that's it. I thought it was a great line. You know. uh, all of us are better when we're loved. I mean, who can argue? <laughs> but uh, I thought I would give it to him because he's, uh, he's serious. The other man, they're all McDonald's because I thought I'd make them all McDonald's because there's so many McDonald's in the world. And the serious one is always saying, aren't the McDonald's wonderful, you know? And the other fellow, he doesn't know very much about the McDonald's. He, he's the kind of man who's always interested in getting uh, a return on his income tax and sings songs and he brings his income tax to the serious one and says, you do this because you can't sing. All you do is add figures, so that's your job. So I thought, I thought it would be interesting to sort of establish a, a contrast because sometimes people think that all people are the same age or the same. All 20-year-olds are like this, all 70-year-olds are like this, but they're not. So that's a long-winded answer. But, but I, I don't think you could argue with the sentiments, you know. You could argue with some of the sentiments that some of the people have in this novel, but I don't think with that. Woof. Okay. Alan, uh, let me ask you, it, it, it took 13 years in <laughs> the writing. I, I'm sure you weren't sat there for 13 no. years, but um, can you explain um, how, how it took that long, how you work, whether you, you were polishing, um, doing detail, or whether you only had access to the time? I mean... Um, it was mostly the latter, it was mostly the time. Yeah. I don't polish very much. Well, I polish sentence by sentence, but I don't do drafts. You know, I kind of think of what I'm going to do. I say, well, what I, the last thing I'm going to say in this novel is, all of us are better when we're loved. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So if I only have like five more years to get there. <laughs> but but uh, my, my wife and I had had, uh, had have six children, and, so I very, and I taught at the university. So I was very busy doing whatever you do when you teach at university and have six children. And sometimes the only time I would get to work at it would be maybe in the summer or maybe at Christmas, you know, and I'd read, start reading it again and say, oh yeah. But I always knew what I was going to do. You know, I had it in my head. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, had to, I had the plan. It was acting out the plan that, was, that took me so long. So uh, 
you know, I, I wasn't there for 13 years from eight till five, you know, like, like some kind of Dickens character with, you know, cobwebs hang from my nose, you know. <laughs> uh, but it was 13 years from the time I began it until it, it ended. But there would be maybe a couple of years in the middle when I didn't even touch it, you know. Well, we'd rather not wait another 13 years. But uh, any other questions here? Yeah, yeah. Nobody like, yeah. there's a man, yeah, there's a person. There's here. Oh, another person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's one up there. Oops. And one there. Do, do you feel that islands have a special literary quality that attract you? Islands? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do, yeah. I believe that people who live on islands are different. <coughs> uh, what is an island, you know? Is Ireland an island? Is, is Australia an island? But I think that when you're cut off from uh, whatever it is they're doing across the water, you're a, little bit, you're a little bit different, you know. Uh, yeah. And I grew up on an island, and there were other islands that you could see. You could see their lights, you know. Say, I wonder what they're doing over there now. They're probably just making toast, you know. <laughs> they're, they're doing what everybody else is doing. But there's always a little a feeling that people on islands are, are different. And I think, in all fairness, sometimes uh, people who live on islands encourage that feeling, you know, that they are different from the people over on the mainland uh, who aren't nearly as clever as they. <laughs> no, but, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm interested. I'm very interested in geography and, and the kind of geography that people are born into, you know, and what happens to them in their particular geography. Because when you're 16 or 17 or something, you can leave your island or you can leave your parents' house or you can leave your parents' political ideas or you can leave all these things that you perhaps didn't like. But by that time, you really know them, whether you like them or not. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, can you, let's have the, the woman up the back there first. Thank you. Fiskerma, uh, thank you very much for your beautiful reading. Last time I heard you read, you said a really, really wise thing. And it sort of echoes your, your words just now just that you were very interested at the age at which things happen yeah. to people. Mm. And I would just like to hear if you wanted to say anything more on that, because that phrase has really echoed in my own work and thoughts in life, and uh, it's great solid ground on it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that, um, that um, if geography is important, when big events happen to you in your life, it is important uh, to understand when they happen. So that if you become pregnant when you're 14, or if you become pregnant when you're 40, it means kind of different things. Or if when you're born, your uh, father is 19, or if when you're born, your father is 56, it kind of means something different. Yes, you do have a father, but in the first case, you have someone almost like an older brother for a father, and in the second case, you have someone like a grandfather who's a father. So in this section I read with the drowning, uh, <coughs> when you lose your parents when you're three, and people say, oh, you know, you're the lucky children saved, or you're unlucky children because you have uh, uh, no parents. There are other people in this novel who are uh, as elderly as 16. So 
the thing about if you lose your parents when you're three, you don't even remember them very well. You know, you can kind of idealize them and say, oh, I bet if my real mother were here, she'd never make me wash my ears or something like that. You know, you can make them into almost anything you want because they're so mysterious. But if you are <coughs> uh, <coughs> 16, when you lose your parents, you kind of know them almost in an adult manner. So your relationship to your parents 16 is different than your relationship to your parents at three. So I'm just kind of interested in that, you know, like where we are, when we get married, or when we get divorced, or when we become pregnant, or when our siblings get killed, <coughs> or, you know, all those things. Because I think that it, it uh, although the events seem the same, they're not the same. They vary according to where you are in your life journey or where you are in time. So I'm interested in that, you know. Uh, looking at the novel geographically, there uh, seem to be two major strands in it. Uh, one, the Scottish strand, and second, the fact of the islands themselves. Which would you say, in general, uh, in your writing, influences you more? Islands in general, or Scotland in particular? Oh, I don't think I would make that, uh, I don't think I'd make a dis the distinction, you know. These are Scottish people who live on islands, or were <laughs> once Scottish people, you know. And uh, they're living, I suppose, to a certain extent, in the way they may have lived in Scotland. They're living in the geography into which they're born. And they're like that for a while, you know, maybe for a long while. And uh, then, they, then they leave, go other places, you know. So I think it, I just think that uh, uh, one of the things about Canada, it's very big, 4,763 miles across. Uh, but Canada, I live in the winter in Windsor, Ontario, which is the southernmost place in Canada, right across the river from Detroit. But Canada is different from the United States in that Canada has no south, you know? In the same way Scotland, like there's no place where you can run around in your bathing suit in Scotland <laughs> on February 14th, and there's no place where you can do that in Canada. But if you live in the United States and you live in Florida or you live in Louisiana or something, you know, you can go to a place where there is no winter. And uh, that's a different geography than, uh, than you have in Canada or that you have in Scotland because you have to do things where there is winter you know you have to get mittens and you have to get snow tires and you have like in fall in Canada a lot of you know everybody's running around getting ready for winter and they better you know or winter will kill them uh, and nobody in Puerto Rico or nobody in uh, you know Coral Gables ever turns on their furnace or gets winter tires or gets snow shovels because they live in a different geography. Other things will kill them, but uh, winter won't, you know. <laughs> so, uh, that's a profound statement. There's one, yeah, up there, and uh, this has to be the last one, I'm afraid. Yeah. Alistair, having spent a lovely week in your company in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, oh. last summer. Oh, it's you. It's himself. <laughs> <laughs> it's Black Angus. I know him. I, kn I know that you have a head full of 
magic stories, my own favourite being the one about the neighbour and the tree. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> which <laughs> would take too long to go into here, yes. I know. Yeah. But uh, I, I am intrigued that the stories I referred to were ones that have not yet appeared in book form, but what, what triggers the writing of a story when you have, as I say, a head full of stories? What, at what moment does a story become one that has to be written rather than just recounted? <laughs> well, I think if you're going to take 13 years to write it, <laughs> better be worthwhile, or, or you better think it's worthwhile. I think that when you write stories, you have to have, uh, you have, to have ideas. You, know, you have to say, well, you know, <laughs> this is my story about loyalty. This is my story about generation gap. This is my story about isolation. This is my story about choice. You know, this is my story about vision. This is my story about, like, I think of them kind of in that way because, like, I'm so pokey and I'm so slow that I say, well, if I'm going into this, you know, I'm going to really try to do it well. And it, it should be as good as I can make it, you know, like I always think, I feel about all this work, that's the best I can do with that idea, you know. Somebody else with this idea, you know, may be able to push it a little, little, little uh, farther. But I like to think, you know, I'm going to write my story about death, I have better. <laughs> death of the old, death of the young, death of the middle age, death of culture, death of the dog, death of blah, 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 you know. Uh, I'm going to try and do this as, uh, as thoroughly as I can. So I don't think I'm going to write the story about the tree. It's <laughs> I don't think I want to devote my life to that. But it's fun. <laughs> I'll tell you more stories later. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think one of the most attractive combinations in human creativity is genius and modesty. And I think that we've been in the presence of that this evening. Um, Alistair will go and sign books in the signing tent, so I'd be obliged if you'd let us out first um, before you, you go there. But please join me in thanking him very warmly for bringing us such, such love, such trust, such genius, and such modesty um, to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's go and sign some books. Okay. Um, yep. You lead the way. You lead the way. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>